2 Samuel chapter 5. I don't think it would surprise anybody here that I'm a fairly confident person. I've always been fairly confident, whether it was when I was swimming growing up or my studies in college and seminary, even in my, uh, my secular job today as an IT specialist. I generally don't um, struggle too much with confidence. I usually feel pretty good about my skills and my abilities. Even when it comes to what we're going to do this morning, in other words, getting into the text, over the years I've developed a certain amount of confidence that um, I can handle the word and I can teach. It doesn't mean I'm always right, but I, I talked with a pastor not too many years ago who told me you know, that he still struggled a little bit every time he got into the word. There's that element of you know, you're handling God's word, but there's, a, there's both a confidence and sometimes a, a healthy fear of what you're doing. And so over the years, I've even developed a, what I'm going to say is a, a fairly confident um, sense of the training that I received from Pastor Krenz, my mentor on how to handle the word, and my time in seminary and the professors, and, and even working alongside somebody like Dustin, where we come together and we study together sometimes to prepare messages. You develop a certain sense of confidence in that. Now, that can be a good thing, but there's also a downside to it. Let me give you an example. Um, Ever since I was saved, I've loved the Word of God, and I've seen um, how I've grown and matured and how I've handled that. I've always been a bit of an analytical thinker. I like to analyze things, and I think that's beneficial. But here's the problem for me, is sometimes I get into a text and I dive into it and I start trying to digest it and I put all the tools and the practices and the skills to work and I begin to work through it. And then I'll come to a passage where I start to struggle a little bit and I spend a couple of days looking at it, scratching my head, not knowing what to do with it, maybe not even understanding what I think the author's intent is. And then all of a sudden it kind of dawns on me that I'm doing it on my own strength and ability that I didn't really stop and pray about it. In fact, I had one of these actually two days ago as I was working through 2 Samuel chapter 9, and I really scratched, I'm sorry, 10, and I I scratched my head and thought, I don't know what to do with this. And I beat my head on the desk for about two days, trying to, I'm like, maybe I'll just skip this portion. Because I don't know what you're going to do with this. I don't see a personal lesson in this. I don't know what God's intent was. Maybe this is just one of those passages that are just purely historical. And then I kind of went, oh, man, you know, maybe I had to pray about this. Maybe I had to ask for the Lord's help. And so I kind of laughed to myself because I know that every time I do that, God has a tendency to open something up. And so I paused for a moment. I started praying and came back about 30 minutes later and I had this idea of what to do with the text. And so the downside sometimes can be that when we're so confident with our abilities or our skills or our gifts that we can just sort of dive in and do it all on our own. And we forget that we are supposed to be reliant on the Lord. We forget that He's got His priorities and maybe they're not always ours. Or sometimes when we go to a text and we come up with this brilliant way to handle the text and we don't stop and go, wait a minute, is that really God's intent with the passage? Today we're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 5 where I think some of these apply It's the passage where David finally becomes king over Israel, and there are a number of things that stand out and relate to maybe what I just shared here about confidence. David was more than qualified to serve as Israel's king. He was a skilled military man with a perfect record, all victories, no defeats. 
He knew how to lead and command an army. In fact, he was extremely powerful with a small number of men going up against armies that were significantly larger than his. He was considered to be, even by today's standards, the military in some ways at some time still looks at techniques and strategies that you find in the scriptures. Not as an active thing. Not so much maybe today as it was in the past, but David, even by today's standards, was considered to be a brilliant military man. He also knew what it took to be king. After all, he had been Judah's king for over seven years at this point. So he had experience working in that capacity. He had every reason to believe, every reason to be confident that he could serve as Israel's king. God had told him he would be king. He was a great military man, which was a huge part of being king. It was his primary job to protect Israel. He had already had the experience seven years of doing this. So he had every reason to be confident that he could serve as king, that he would do a decent job at it. However, we find as we look at our text today that it wasn't David's own skill or abilities that made him a great king. It wasn't his confidence that made him a great king. There are some other things. In fact, we're going to look at four of them today. I'm going to point out four things that I believe led to David becoming a great king. I'm going to use some alliteration again, something I don't do often, but these are all going to be P words. Help us remember. So let's look at these four things, these four um, things that contributed to David being a great king. The first one we find in the first five verses or so. Let me read that to you. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 5. It says this, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bones and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be a ruler over Israel. So all the leaders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron. Then he anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. The first thing that we're going to see here is that David's role as king was established on the priorities of God. The first word I want us to remember there is the word priority. David became king because of the Lord's priorities. That's really, that's, that's really at the heart of why David was a good king. It was because he became king because of the Lord's priorities. Remember, last week as we looked at this, David didn't ascend to the throne based on, his, based on um, some illegitimate means. Remember that Ishbosheth had been assassinated. He was the king over Israel at the time. David could have easily at that time said, my enemy's gone, I can go ahead and I can march in, I can take it, it's rightfully mine. But David didn't do that. What did he do? He stopped and he prayed. Asked the Lord, what should I do? He waited for the Lord to direct him. In other words, he was more interested in what the Lord's plans were, the Lord's priorities, than he was his own. And so we see David actually, throughout his whole entire life, be prepped and prepared for this. It was the Lord's priority that brought him to this role as king. The second thing that we might notice with this is that the Lord's promise wasn't fulfilled overnight. David was a youth, maybe anywhere from 10 to 15 years old, when he was first anointed and told that he would become king over Israel. So he was a young man. He then became king over Judah around... 23, so it was significantly later when he finally became king, king over Judah. And now it had been another seven and a half years. So David is probably close to around 30 years of age at this point, which means he had waited over 20 years 
before God had fulfilled His promise and His priorities to him. There was nothing fast about it. And so the, the first thing we might note about this is that he became king by, because of the Lord's priority, but sometimes God's promise and his priorities take some time to fulfill. And so this tells us something about both the Lord and David. As for the Lord, we see that he's never in a hurry with his plans, is he? He's never in a hurry. It's always his timing and his purpose that he fulfills. Think about this. At the fall, we have the first mention of God's redemptive plan, the gospel. It's in Genesis chapter 3. It's when Adam and Eve fall, and Eve has promised a seed that would ultimately, we know, turn out to be the Redeemer. It wasn't for another 2,000 years before we see the next major step in that plan of redemption, and that's the calling of Abraham. Then we have another 500 years before we see the next major step, which is ultimately the Exodus, bringing Israel out of Egypt the conquest of the land and the giving of the law. Then we got another 1,500 years before Christ was born. And then, where are we now? Another 2,000 years still waiting for the next major step. God is not always fast about his purpose or his plan. There's elements of waiting, and I think that waiting is, is good. It was good in David's case. David was patient. He waited. He recognized that it was the Lord's priorities, not his as for David, we see that he's patient, he's willing to accept God's timing. And I think that's good because it's, fairly, it's a fairly typical expectation of God's people, is it not? We are a people that are expected to wait. David had to wait 15 to 20 years to become king. Abraham waited 20 years for God to provide him with Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah waited another 20 years for God to give him Jacob. Even the Apostle Paul. How many of you realize that the Apostle Paul really didn't engage in what I'm going to call his primary ministry for almost 14 years after the Lord saved him. Think about this. You have this miraculous event. You're traveling along, going to persecute the Jews. You think you're doing God's will, and all of a sudden, this blinding light comes from the sky, knocks you off your horse on the ground, and it's Jesus Christ saying, Hey, Paul, guess what, buddy? Life's about to change. Why are you persecuting me? You're now going to go out, you're going to declare my name, my purposes... You're going to suffer for it. You would almost think that Paul would think, okay, supposed to start. But what happened? Fourteen years elapsed before Paul becomes what I'm going to call the primary apostle to the Gentiles. We don't know what he did during that time, but he really didn't doesn't burst onto the scene for a full fourteen years. Patient. Waiting. Sometimes God uses that time, I think, to demonstrate to us that it is about his priorities. It is about his purposes. It is about his timing. So maybe the takeaway in these first five verses for us here is that what we see here is that David became king, and one of the, one of the things that made David a great king is that he became king based on the Lord's priorities, not his own. He didn't seek the kingdom for himself. He didn't seek the kingship. It was the Lord who said, I want to make you king. David recognized that, and he was willing to wait to be patient for it. I think about this in our own lives and I think about when we do things. I think about ministry in general. I think about churches and our purposes and our plans sometimes. The best churches, the best Christians are those that recognize that their lives are about God's priority, not their own. And a willingness to wait to see God fulfill those priorities or sometimes those promises. To do it on His timing, not our own. Let's move on then to verses... Uh, 6 through 10. One of the things that made David a great king was that 
he recognized the Lord's presence in his life. That's the second key word for you there. He recognized the Lord's presence in his life. Look at verses 6 through 10. Now the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, and they said to David, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will turn you away, thinking, David cannot enter here. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul through the water tunnel. Therefore they say, the blind or the lame shall not come into, his, into the house. So David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from Milo and inward. But look at this, verse 10. This is our key verse. David became great, or I'm sorry, became greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. For the Lord of hosts was with them. One of the first things that David does when he became king of Israel is attacks the Jebusites. He drives them away, drives them out of the region. During the conquest, Israel was supposed to drive out the Canaanites, but they didn't do it because of their disobedience. We remember that when we studied the book of Joshua. Um, Even the the book of Judges, we saw that reflected as well, that Israel didn't do their job in driving out some of the inhabitants. Well, that's something David makes a priority in his kingship. Much of the land was still controlled by these Jebusites. The text doesn't tell us why David made his first order of business attacking them, but it's likely due to the fact that he understood the importance of carrying out God's command. We see that in a number of places where David does things that those before him did not do because the law and obedience to it was important to him. And so he drives out these Jebusites. Prior to this, David had already established himself as a great military commander, but the text tells us that he continued to grow even greater and greater after that. It also tells us why. Verse 10, it says, it's because the Lord was with him. I want you to listen to a couple of these other verses. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 12 through 13 says, The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. That's where David received his strength from. We also read these words in 2 Samuel 7, where it says, I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. That was the Lord speaking to David, basically telling him, I will be with you, and that will be the cause of your greatness. So David's greatness as king was wholly attributed to the Lord's presence and favor in his life, which was a direct result of David's love and obedience for the Lord. What a contrast that was to Saul. You remember how Saul behaved and what did the Lord finally do with Saul? It says that he removed his spirit from him. Took his presence, if you will, away from Saul. So what's the takeaway from us, or for us with this? The Lord, I don't think, has promised us greatness like he did David. But he has promised to bless us when we live close to him. I'm reminded of Psalm chapter 1. Go back to Psalm chapter 1 with me. Psalm chapter 1 reads like this. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. That describes David. In fact, David is probably the author of this psalm. It says his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night, which means he was committed to to it and to obedience. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. 
and whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I don't think it's any shock why that might be the first psalm listed, because it sort of establishes principles based, or that we see throughout the rest of the psalms. That those who honor the Lord, those who love the Lord, those who obey the Lord, stay close to Him, and as a result, He blesses them. They'll prosper. And it's a perfect picture of David's life. The Lord was present with David, which is one of the reasons why David became the king that he was. And so we have these two things so far. The fact that David's kingdom and his kingship was based on the priority of the Lord, and he was committed to that, but also he recognized the need to stay close to the Lord, He needed the Lord's presence. That was pretty clear. And we see that. And we get, again, we get these um, contrasting views with Saul. And even when we get into 1 and 2 Kings, and we see many of these kings, the great kings were those that the Lord's presence and favor rested upon. The wicked kings were not. And so the takeaway for us, I think, is this should model us as well. I love James' statement that we should draw near to the Lord and He will draw near to us. If we want the Lord's favor in our lives, we need the Lord's presence, do we not? And the way that we maintain that is by loving Him with our all, with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, by walking with Him, drawing near to Him, allowing Him to guide and direct us. And that's exactly what we see in David's life. Now, we know David stumbled and fell, but we also see the way that David handled those times when confronted for his sin. And that, again, reflects his love, devotion, and commitment to the Lord. And the Lord did not withdraw his presence from David at those times, did he? He was still called a man after God's own heart, even after his sin. The Lord did not remove his presence from him like he did from Saul. And so that was the second thing that made David a great king, a great leader. How about a third thing? Verses 11 through 16. Let me read those. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David with cedar trees and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a house for David. And David realized that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Meanwhile, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron and more sons and daughters were born to David. Now these are the names of those who were born in, born to him in Jerusalem. Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Jephiah, Elishama, Elida, Eliphet. Basically, it's a picture of David's children that he had. Now, I'm not going to deal specifically with the comment in verse 14, David taking concubines and wives. David did have multiple wives. We know that that wasn't necessarily appropriate. Scripturally, it's one man, one woman. David was not a perfect man. Um, we don't know what was behind the taking of these extra wives and concubines. There were only a few unlike Solomon who multiplied wives for himself and 700 wives and 300 concubines, which is clearly condemned. But we do find this with many of our leaders in the Old Testament, Abraham and others that took multiple wives or or women, so we can't necessarily explain that or write it off, but it was something that was thoroughly and clearly embedded in their culture and society. Um, So I'm not going to deal a whole lot with that. What I do want to do, though, is I want to look specifically at something that we see here. If you look at verse um, 12, And David realized that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, 
and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. The third thing I want us to see here, the third reason I believe David became a wise and a humble king is because he recognized the Lord's purpose in making him king. In other words, why did the Lord make him king? David recognized that. The word realized here is important. It says David realized this. When we hear the word realized, we generally think of something you know, dawning on us like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Really, the word here simply means to know something, and it's used in a particular tense that indicates it was an ongoing thing. Meaning, a better way to translate this is, David was knowing. He was completely aware of. And it says that he was completely aware of God's purpose in making him king. You might say he was aware of two things. The first is that the Lord made him king. The text tells us that very clearly. David realized that the Lord had established him as king over Israel. He knew it was all of God's doing, God's purpose. We've already alluded to that earlier in the text. The second thing that is made clear here is David knew that the Lord made him king not for his own benefit, but notice what it says in verse 12. He had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. David knew that the Lord, he recognized or realized that the Lord had made him king, not for his own benefit, but for the Lord's purpose to serve for the sake of God's people, Israel. He was a servant who was there for the sake of God's people. Think about how embracing God's purpose would impact our own lives. I've often wondered why it is that the Lord saved me. Ever wonder about that? Often wonder why God does a lot of things. It's always in accordance with His purpose and His plan, including why He might save us. I'm going to throw a couple of scenarios out there. Think about it this way. Would a husband be a better husband if he realized that the Lord had made him a husband, not for his own benefit, but for the sake of his wife? Paul tells us that when he says that husbands are to love their wives like Christ loved the church, to nourish them and to cherish them? Would a wife be a better wife if she realized that maybe she was a wife because the Lord made her a wife for the sake of her husband? We can apply this to fathers and mothers. Maybe the reason the Lord... Or maybe the reason I became a parent wasn't because I chose to be a parent, but because the Lord made me a parent for the sake of my children. What about this? What if we realize that it wasn't so much that we chose God, but that God chose us? That's what Ephesians tells us. But what if we also realize that He didn't choose us necessarily just for our, our own benefit, but for His purpose? Isn't that what Jesus did when he told the disciples to go make disciples of all nations? You see, one of the reasons that David was a great king is that he realized that the Lord specifically chose him for the purpose of leading his people Israel. That it wasn't necessarily for his own benefit. And we see David live that out. We see quite the opposite with Saul, don't we? How did, why did Saul pursue David so relentlessly? Because he was so interested in securing the kingdom for himself. It was all about himself. It wasn't about God's people. If Saul would have recognized that this is all about God's purpose and plan, he would have served the Lord a little better. But instead he served himself. 
And even when the Lord says, you know what, um, you're not working out so well, Saul. I'm going to have to put David there. If Saul would have been thinking, you know what, this is all about God's purpose and plan for his people, Saul would have said, you know what, Lord, if I'm not doing the job, and if David could serve your people better than me, then by all means, put David there. But that's not the way that people think, is it? It's about me. It's about my purpose and even within Christianity, one of the things that breaks my heart today is when we look around within the Christian church and we have this very narcissistic or self-focused thing that it's all about me. God is my little genie that I just rub the bottle and he comes out and he's there to serve me. We see that especially within many of the um, word faith movement preachers and teachers and that, that it's God's just a giant genie to meet our needs. And we don't realize that, no, he chose us for his purpose and to carry out his plan. And part of that plan, we're told, is in serving others and being a witness for him. It isn't all about us. And I think David understood that because it tells us here that he was continually realizing that the Lord had made him king for his purpose and he did it so that he might serve the Lord's people. That's something I think especially pastors and Christian leaders need to keep in mind. It's not about us. God has put us in a place and a position to serve his people. There's a fourth one. Verses 17 through 25. Let me go ahead and read those. Verses 17 through 25. When the Philistines heard that he had anointed, or that they had anointed David over Israel, all the Philistines went up to seek out David. And when David heard of it, he went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines came and spread themselves out in the valley of Rephaim. Then David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. So David came to Baal-perazim and defeated them there, and he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like the breakthrough of waters. Therefore he named the place Baal-perazim. They abandoned their idols there, so David and his men carried them away. Now the Philistines came up once again and spread themselves out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord. He said, You shall... Or you shall not go directly up, circle around behind them, and come at them in front of the balsam trees. It shall be when you hear the sound of the marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then you shall act promptly, for the Lord will have gone out before you to strike the enemy of the Philistines, or the army of the Philistines. Then David did so, and just as the Lord commanded him, and struck down the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. The last thing I want to point out here, the last P word for you, if you will, the word power, David became a successful king because he relied on the power of the Lord, not his own strength. Remember, David, David was skilled, brilliant military man. One of the main roles of the king is obviously to protect his people. That's why the Lord um, called Saul and he said, you will protect my people. That's why he called David. One of the things we see throughout David's life that leads to his success in this area is this continued reliance upon the Lord's power rather than his own power. There are at least seven times recorded in the story of David's life where he inquires of the Lord, more than anybody else. And this is just one of those examples. And David does it twice here. You notice the first time, he sees the Philistines preparing to attack, 
And he asks the Lord if he should go on the offensive to attack them. So the first question basically is, should I go and attack them? And the Lord basically gives him the affirmative yes, promises to defeat the Philistines, and he ultimately delivers them into David's hands. There's a second instance here that's a little bit different, though. Because David seeks the counsel again. Now think about this for a moment. The Philistines come out. You ask the Lord, should I go attack them? And the Lord says, yes, I'll wipe them out for you. And David describes it here as the floods of water, which means God just wipes them out, right? Doesn't completely, totally annihilate them, but at least this particular army does what he needs to do. And so David sees that. Imagine the confidence that might build. Well, then they decide to rise up again. Wouldn't you think you'd just go back out knowing that the Lord's promise still stood? But David inquires again. It doesn't tell us the question he asks, but it can be implied from the way the Lord responds because the Lord basically gives him a strategy now to defeat the Philistines. So it appears the question David asks is not, should I go attack? But, okay, how should I attack? I think that's pretty telling because David's asking for wisdom. Now again, remember, he was a brilliant military man. David probably could have figured it out himself. What's the best way to do this? In fact, there's another story a little bit later in, in uh, the book where um, David's enemies kind of they, they kind of come out to the, the city. They hire a bunch of others um, from the north, and they send them down to the south. And David sends Joab out to fight the battle. And as Joab, Joab doesn't know what he's about to enter into, but as he gets to the area, he realizes he's now got an army in the front of him and an army behind him. It's a tactic, a military tactic that's used. Very dangerous. And so Joab decides to split the army in half, his army in half, and begins to fight the battle so that he can fight it on, on two fronts. David was a very skilled military man. His commanders were very skill, skilled. They knew how to fight. Why did David ask the Lord for strategy? Why did he ask him for wisdom here on exactly how to attack the Philistines, especially since he had already defeated them once before? Remember, David at this point is, is batting a thousand. He hasn't lost a battle. Why does he have to stop and ask the Lord for wisdom? Probably because he recognized that even in all of his strength, in all of his abilities, in all of his wisdom, all of his military smarts, David still recognized that he needed the power of the Lord to accomplish what the Lord wanted him to accomplish. He's humble. Exactly. And I think that's at the heart of it. One of the things that makes a great leader is humility. A willing to recognize you can't do it on your own. So he prayed again, I think, because of that reason. He could have gone out and just done it. But he recognized that without the power of the Lord, without the wisdom from, from God, it might not go so well the next time. I think he recognized his need to be totally dependent on the Lord. This is really a cry of dependence. Psalm 17, I'm going to read a bunch of these for you. Psalm 17, verse 13. We see these things reflected in David in the Psalms. What you see elsewhere in the scriptures are David's battles, his victories. Psalms tells us what he was thinking with those victories and those battles. I'm going to read a handful of these. Psalm 17, 13. Rise up, Lord, confront them, bring them down with your sword. Rescue me from the wicked. Psalm 35, 1-3, Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold 
Rise up a buckler and a shield. Rise up for my help. Draw also the spear and the battle axe to meet those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Psalm 59, 1-3. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. Set me securely on high away from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who do iniquity and save me from men of bloodshed. Psalm 69. Save me, O God. For the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and a flood overflows me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. I'll do one more. Psalm 70. O God, hasten to deliver me. O Lord, hasten to my help. Let those be ashamed and humiliated who seek my life. Let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in my hurt. Let those who turn back because of their shame who say, Aha! Aha! Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you, and let those who love your salvation say continually, Let God be magnified. But I am afflicted and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer, O Lord. Do not delay. Again, the point of me reading these passages is what we see in in the Old Testament is this, this bold military man who goes out and conquers his enemies. Yes, he asks the Lord for help. Yes, he prays beforehand. But what we see in the Psalms here is what's going on in David's head at that time. Total dependence and recognition that I need you, Lord, to fight this battle. I need your power. I need your salvation. I need to wait on you. You need to be the one that is magnified in this victory, not me. It's not about me winning as much as it is you, Lord, conquering your enemies. So we get this amazing picture into what David is thinking. So I can imagine as David, he might have written one of these psalms at this point as he's asking the Lord, how do I do this, Lord? Tell me what to do. I think it's a great picture. Probably, in some respects, this aspect of David, I think, is almost more significant than the previous three we talked about. They're all important. But this idea that David recognized, I am totally dependent on the Lord. He has to do this, not me. And again, this is from a man who was a brilliant military man. Do you think we sometimes get a little bit complacent ourselves with something like this? I'll be real frank, I do, because I started off our time this morning by saying, I'm a fairly confident person in my skills and abilities. Some might say arrogant. I wouldn't say arrogant. Maybe in other things, but... We can just kind of go about things, can't we? You know, we use our gifts and our abilities, and we go about, and we just, we just kind of do it. You know, I've been parenting now for 17 years. I still stink at it in some respects. But you know, you fall in these habits and patterns, and you just do it, and you don't always stop and say, wait a minute i got to keep praying about this. We're just kind of used to it, you know? Maybe the wisdom that I try to pass on isn't always the best. Maybe I didn't think about it beforehand. I just answered because of my experience and what's worked in the past. See my point? You just got to step back and say, no, man, Lord, you know what? As, as much as you've given me gifts and abilities, I still can't just exercise all that on my own. You know, I, I've shared a little bit about sometimes my struggles with my with my job and some of the frustrations, things not always necessarily going the way that I expect them to go or not always being treated the way that I think I ought to be treated. And so the, la- the course of the last couple of years has been a challenge for me because I've had to really stop and just think, you know what, um, it's just the way life is right now and I just have to rely on the Lord to enable me to still continue to honor Him and be gracious and be kind. And um, It's been neat to see how God's kind of worked through that. Um, I've just had to realize 
that um, I can't always do things on my own. I can't always just expect things to turn out the way that they should because I put my skills and my abilities to the test and just, I've got to step back, you know. I shared just briefly about even coming up here and standing before you folks sometimes. I have to stop and make sure that I'm praying and make sure that I'm relying on the Lord, not just skills and abilities and education and other things. Um, whether it's a parent, whether it's being a husband to my wife, we can certainly try to do all those things on our own, can't we? But that's not what the Lord wants. And if we're to be great at those things, if I can say it that way, or if we desire to be a good husband, a better husband, a better wife, a better parent, a better employee, a better minister of God's people, then we have to rely on the Lord's power. You know, Jesus, when he left, promised us that he'd give us a gift. What was that gift? What's that? The Holy Spirit. And what does he call the Holy Spirit? A helper. He is our helper. He is the one that is supposed to work through us. Paul in Ephesians says that we are supposed to submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit. He is what drives us, lives within us. We're supposed to submit to that, be filled by the Holy Spirit, because that's the way the Lord expects us to work. And I think as we look at David, we we see that here. And so, again, I'll just briefly recap this. What we really see in David are these these principles with him. He's called a man after God's own heart. And again, it wasn't about being perfect because he wasn't perfect. But some of the things we see here, we, we actually see him understanding that it's the Lord's priority that made him king. That it wasn't his own. It was the Lord that had promised to make him king, and it took 20 years to fulfill, but ultimately the Lord fulfilled that, operated and made him king based on what the Lord wanted, which for us simply means that we should be interested in the Lord's priorities, not necessarily our own. Um, We think about the presence of the Lord in David's life. David was somebody who could look back and see that the Lord was constantly with him. It's interesting, if we lived our lives in a way that every single day we recognize the Lord's presence is with me, that might also help to maybe regulate our behavior too, wouldn't it? might sort of set how we're going to behave, the things that we're going to do, where our priorities are. We recognize the Lord's presence in our lives. We also saw that David recognized the Lord's purpose in him becoming king. What about us? I look at David, he's a pilot. What's the Lord's purpose in him being a pilot? My job is an IT person. As a wife, as a mother. What is the Lord's purpose? He's got one in making you what he made you. Recognizing that means that we will then operate in a way that honors and glorifies God to that purpose, correct? And then last one, recognizing the power of the Lord and being dependent upon that. Doing what we do in the power of the Lord. We are supposed to be a submissive people that allows him to work and to live through us. And ultimately, that's what made David not just a great king, but a man after God's own heart. And I think it sort of then sets the table for us. I'm going to go ahead and end with that, a little bit shorter this morning. But you know what? That's, uh, that's good enough with our text this morning. So hopefully that will give us um, 